A very well-known part of the Bible has a seldomly known, awesome, intriguing fact. I get to tell you about that today. But I want to start with why our world is so ugly and how to define beauty on this week's Corey Truax Show. And yes, you, the faithful listeners of the Corey Truax Show, might say, but you said, but you said, Corey, that we would start every episode of the year with our chronological Bible reading. And I'm changing the agreement. And to quote Darth Vader, pray the agreement doesn't change anymore. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm going to come to the end at the end of the show. Our final segment, we will do what we have been doing with our chronological Bible reading. But I came across a story that sent me down a thought rabbit hole rabbit hole that I think is fun, it's instructive, it's deeper than anything you're going to get on talk radio or on news media. This is the good stuff. This is the smart stuff. Not because I'm of high intellect, but because the topic is rich, the topic is beauty, and I want to get down to to the core of what we mean when we say that word and try to come at it with a biblical perspective. I'll tell you the story that got it started in just a moment. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts and right here on his radio talk. Glad to have you with us. You can find me, your host, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. And the final thing you need to be, need to know about me is I get to serve the awesome people of Beachwood Church on Sunday mornings at 1030 in Greenville. That's when we meet as their pastor for teaching all of the month of February. If the Lord wills from week to week, I'll be finishing up the Gospel of Mark together. So if you don't have a church home, you're invited out. Let me tell you the story that caught my eye. It's the typical thing that happens in right-leaning and conservative-leaning media. Someone in the left, left-leaning left uh, sphere does something that we can mock or make fun of and call them, uh, what do we call them now? Uh, they're not... The, we, call, we call them weak. It's not cupcakes. Uh, the, it's folks that get their feelings hurt too easily. And that's part of what I saw. I just saw people making fun of it. And I think when people do that, they, they pay attention to the person or the news itself and not the idea undergirding it. We miss out on a good opportunity to think deeply. So here's that story. You can get it a lot of places. Here's the version uh, from the New York Post. The headline is, which is most what... Most what is most of what people will read. Uh, the headline is Cody CEO, that's C-O-T-Y. The Cody CEO accuses dictionary publishers of sexism and ageism in the definitions of beauty. Here's the story. The chief, exe- chief executive of Cody, that's the company that owns Kylie Jenner's cosmetics business, blasted dictionary publishers for describing the word beauty in ageist and sexist terms. From there, I just went over to their website and the petition that they are they're putting out there because I, I wanted to see from their own lips what they're talking about. But this secular, progressive, woke company, very much part of the spirit of the age, they are complaining to the people who publish dictionaries, your definition of beauty is ageism, or excuse me, it's ageist, it's sexist, it's anachronistic, it's, it's the old thinking, and you need to change it. You need to change how you define beauty in your dictionary. Cody actually puts on their petition a slide with the current definition of beauty. I will share that with you now. Beauty. As an adjective, a combination of qualities such as shape, color, form, 
that pleases the aesthetic senses, especially the sight. And for the first definition, the adjective, he's, they give you the sentence, I was struck by her beauty. And then they have, as another adjective, a beautiful woman. And the example sentence is, she was considered a great beauty in her youth. Those are your definitions of beauty, and those are what have offended them. And they are wanting to see change. All right, and so now we can take a few minutes and make fun of them for having their feelings hurt, and we can, we can mock them for how stupid this is that they care about it. Yes, that's one of the options, sure. Instead, why don't we look behind what we mean by that word? Now I was, uh, I should start here. I, I was going to give you some thoughts of great thinkers on how we define beauty. I'm still going to do that, but it occurs to me, let's start with Scripture. It's one of my favorite times the word beauty is used in the, in the Bible and why we should be concerned with it. I can't remember what psalm it is. I apologize for that. But I remember David writes, there's one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after. It's that I will dwell or I may, I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Our God is a beautiful God. He makes beautiful things. He didn't make the world gray and dreary. He made it beautiful. He didn't make it flat. He made it mountainous. He didn't make it just desert. He made it oceans. He didn't make birds just white, black, and gray. He made them incredible colors. He didn't make, I mean, the the God who comes up with the peacock likes beautiful things. So we should concern ourselves with beauty and what the culture in which we live, or at least how the culture in which we live, defines it. In that petition that that this Cody brand has, has started, they start with, it's time to undefine beauty. Not Consider what you might go with first. You go to the dictionary and decide you don't like what they're saying about beauty. You might say you want to redesign it. But that's not their headline. Their headline is, it's time to undefine beauty. Their hashtag, you can go look at it on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, if you want to. The hashtag going around is undefined beauty. It's such a emblematic phrase of our day. It goes along with the destruction and deconstruction stuff I talked about last week. We aren't in a moment of saying, really, that your definition of beauty is wrong. We're saying you can't have one. That we're going to undefine that word altogether. So I'm kind of finished with them. The world and secular progressivism is going to do what it's going to do. It's a godless worldview that leads to godless conclusions. So let's get to the next next level deeper on how we think about beauty and ugliness. The fact that we live in a secular progressive world is, is why our world has gotten so ugly. Getting this concept of beauty wrong, trying to undefine it, destroy the concept itself, is ugly because it's godless. We say God is beautiful. When we take him out of the the the, the king of ob- objective beauty, then the world becomes ugly. You know, I trace that through architecture. I think a thousand years ago, think of even just a f- hundreds of years ago, when we made things, we made them to be glorious. Of course, I think about the cathedrals that the Catholics built throughout Western Europe. I think about the the old churches you can even see in downtown Greenville and in most downtowns throughout the United States, when we built 
our architecture. We built it for glory. We made a statement with it. But that's even outside of the religious world. It's one of the best tours I've ever been on. I went on an architecture tour of New York City, and they tell the stories of the different eras of architecture all the way up through that art, art deco world that largely marks a big, a big part of Midtown now. And there's stories being told in how we make things. And this, there, there was an art to our buildings. I mean, even just go to, go to an old downtown now and look at just the finest little details. How at the top of every corner, there's a, there's a gargoyle, there's a statue, there's something they made at the end of every street instead of just making it a sleek finish. There's something beautiful everywhere. That architectural realm, or at least phase, faded, uh, that romantic period went into something called, I believe that was called the objective period of art, where we stopped thinking about beauty at all and everything was function. We, that's when we started making big box stores. Like malls even used to be kind of a, a pretty place, but we just started with the advent of Walmart. Even before that, it was Circuit City, it was Radio Shack, it was the big box stores. You do just make a giant square or a giant rectangle in the in a field somewhere. It is a totally flat on the outside. Its colors are bland, and you just walk into a giant storehouse, and there's nothing special about it, nothing to draw your eye. It's just functional. Same thing with our houses. Our houses used to say something when we built them. And as house home building came up in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, that's when we started doing mass production homes where we clear out a field. We say we're going to build 100 homes, and they can be of these four shapes. They can be of these four dimensions. You can choose whatever combination of these four that you want, but you're all having the same house, right? That's what happened to our architecture. Our world has gotten uglier. As we become a more godless place, everything we make becomes less appealing. You can trace this through art. The actual visual arts will first start with you know painting, drawing, but even eventually to photography even. The measurement of art, the greatness of it, was reflective of of whether or not you could accurately reflect life. Before photographs, and you couldn't see famous people, you couldn't see your king, you couldn't see your ancestors, it was un, un, inexpressibly valuable that someone could, with accuracy, capture a moment, capture a face, capture the details of someone's, someone's actual jawline or ha- how their hands looked. Like, this is... An incredible skill, and art was judged by whether or not it looked like the thing you were trying to reflect. And then as art goes on, we moved into the modernist period. It wasn't judged by how it reflected life. It was how it indirectly reflected life. So we were trying to read into, had to have an interpretive motif of what this person was trying to say by making this thing that doesn't look like life It could look like random shapes to us. It could look like it has no real design, but we're supposed to be interpreting these shapes and colors and designs. So it's not reflective of life, but we are indirectly trying to say something about life through the art. As we even get further today, and I don't know what you would call some of the monstrosities that we build today. Have you noticed that the idea of sculpture and high-end painting has kind of fallen to the wayside? We just don't make beautiful things because we have entered into a godless worldview and godlessness is ugly. 
one of the definitions of beauty you'll find in the philosophers is that things are beautiful when they're being used or being operated in the accordance of their design. They're, these are not my examples. Again, smarter people uh, have said these. When we see an eagle fly, it is glorious. It's majestic. It's beautiful. Because it's doing what it's supposed to. When a vista, an overlook, I think right now of the Blue Ridge Parkway up in Asheville through Western North Carolina, when those leaves start to change in October every year, it's breathtaking. Why? It's just doing what it's supposed to do. It's going through the natural seasons. Nature is doing what it's supposed to. It's beautiful when a child reaches up for her mother or her father. But why does it strike us that way? Because it's just so good and beautiful. It's so natural. It's, it's whatever's the thing, the exact thing that's supposed to be happening is happening. That young girl reached up for her mom or dad, and that mom or dad picked her up. It's just beautiful. I love seeing it. The inverse is ugliness is when something is used outside its purpose. And we're just full of that in the West. We use marriage, parenting, sex, money, leisure time, entertainment. We use things outside of their purpose constantly, and it makes an ugly world. Now, thinking about beauty, I think I can establish some definitions and how to think about it from some biblically informed thinkers. But let's start there. From that psalm that David just desired to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. We have a beautiful God. He made beauty. We should be concerned with it. We should want to make beautiful things. We should want to define it properly. Whether secular progressives want to tear down what the word is, I don't want to necessarily forget about them, but I don't want to obsess over them. Let's actually get the concept down. I'm going to give you some thoughts from C.S. Lewis, Dovskoyetsky, John Yates, one of my favorite poets. There's These men have great things to say about how we should think about beauty in modern day. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Cora Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Defining beauty biblically, at least the best way that I can. I'll take my best shot at it, and I can always be corrected or at least spoken into if you have other thoughts on this as we walk through it. We'll get started on that in just a moment on the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Find me, Corey Truax, your host on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also email the show at Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com. So we establish God is the creator of beauty. He made the world beautiful when he could have made it bland. We have a story out there right now where one group of people wants to redefine that word. They're mad that that word makes them feel certain ways about ageism and sexism, and they want to undefine it, not redefine it. Destroy the idea that anyone can call anything beautiful, that there would be any kind of standard. Now, beauty is one of the driving forces of humanity. We should understand it. Dust, Dust, I can't, I can never say his name, Dostoyevsky, the famous Russian, very important Russian author, in one of his books called, I think it was just called Idiot, it might have been The Idiot, one of the main characters has a, a poignant line near the end of a very dark book where he says, beauty will save the world. C.S. Lewis, I think, was later commenting on that when he talked about how humanity just desires to be joined to beauty, not just to witness it, not just to see it, 
in nature and in people and in relationships and in art. We want to experience, somehow be joined to beauty itself. It's in our hearts to do it, and so as the world creates ugly things, we need to know as Christians the world is looking for beauty. If we can create it in our art, in our music, in our households, and how we talk to each other, love each other, if we can create beauty, people are actually drawn to it. We want to be drawn to beauty. Another profound thing C.S. Lewis said about this. I, I I wish I would have come up with this point. I don't know what trip he was on, but there was a uh, on this trip up some some mountains, he said there was marked something called a scenic overlook. I think I've given you this point before. And he makes an incredible point that there is no disagreement on this, on what on where people should stop. There was no vote. There wasn't any dissenting voice that said, "No, this isn't a beautiful place to stop." Just objectively, as this road was being built, humans looked over some over some overlook and went, this is breathtaking. It's astonishing. People should stop and see this. We should put a sign out here that says there's a scenic overlook right here. I used to do a lot of hiking. That's a, a conclusion I, I came to. Like we're, none of us are going to argue. <laughs> like There's an objective beauty here. Looking out on wide swaths of earth doing what it's supposed to do, nature operating how it's supposed to operate. We just know there's beauty there. Plato said of beauty. Beauty is, this is where we're getting into the core of it. Beauty is the splendor of truth. I I connect that back to how I was talking about art earlier. On the earliest stages of artistic movements, we judged art by how well it reflected reality. We asked beauty... Are you being true? The person you're painting, are you being true to them? The, the vista, the flower, the, the scene you're painting, are you being true to what it was? Or to the idea that you're trying to create, to the emotions you're trying to elicit, are you being true to them in what you're, cre- you're creating? That's the connection. Beauty is truth. Beauty is the splendor of truth. It goes to that other definition. Beauty is when... Things are being used the way they're supposed to. They're operating the way they're supposed to. When life aligns itself with its own design, when truth is being experienced, it's just beautiful. When a husband is loving his wife and a wife is loving her husband properly, it's just beautiful. When a child and her children are being raised in loving houses and supported, it's just beautiful. When communities take care of each other, and they don't care for their, their own outcome more than they care for their neighbor's outcome. When you see strangers helping strangers, we, we just find it beautiful because truth is operating. Which brings me to where I wanted to spend most, most of the time we had today. John Yates is an overlooked poet of the Romantic period. He's the very end of the Romantic period. British poet. He died early. I think he wasn't even 30. But he had one of my favorite poems. It takes a long time to read it and understand it. You can't go fast. I remember the first time I read it, I think I was in high school, and went, uh, none of this makes any sense. And it got taught to me, and I realized how brilliant it was. He has a poem called Ode to a Grecian Urn. Let me give you the concept before I give you the money line of the poem. The concept is what he was probably 
looking at Grecian urn, or at least some kind of rendering of it, and recognizing what the Greeks did with their urns. They would paint things on there. And so when they were painting some guy doing his farming, or some mother nursing her child, or they were... They would put on there some some decree, a king on his throne, something like that. It was his observation that that thing, that farmer doing his farming, that mother nursing the child, that king doing his ruling, for that urn, for that time, it will never not be happening. Like, this is profound in a world that never had a picture taken. It's profound. Like we have that now all the time. Like we we can go back to whatever picture we want. I can go back to my wedding pictures, and it's always like that's. That moment is always happening because it was captured. But guys, this was like, what was that? Almost 400 years ago. This is profound. He looks at an urn and goes, yes, that, that beautiful moment, a man tilling the earth, doing what God called him to do. And one of the first jobs God gave us was to get into the earth and bring forth its fruit. A mother taking care of her child, a king ruling over a kingdom. That which, which should be happening is happening and it's captured forever in this picture on this urn, and so he writes the Ode to the Grecian Urn. And he goes through beautiful scenes. He goes through a scene of uh, two people in love right before the moment they kiss. He says, if you capture it right there, if you put that on the, I'm not quoting the poem right now, I'm giving you the concepts. If you go to that moment, that anticipation moment, you're always in love in that moment. You're always... Young and he specifically says she's she's always young and beautiful. That's the that's the line. You never have to leave that moment. And he does it over and over again. He he kept he catches what I think we would all call objectively beautiful moments, where it's it's not up to opinion. They are beautiful moments in a human's life. And he's making the observation that when you capture it in art, it just stays beautiful. We all, we all know that those are beautiful moments. There's no argument around them. They are times where things are exactly as they should be. If you go read the poem, you'll get those, you'll get those images. And then he comes to the end of the poem where he's, he's laid out all these awesome things that happened in life, these beautiful scenes, and he comes to this line. Beauty is truth. Truth, beauty. And that is all ye need to know in this life. There's a simplicity there that rings true. As Lewis said, we're all just trying to be joined to something beautiful. Well, what is beautiful? Truth is beautiful. If we will seek after the truth and then adhere, not adhere, if we will adjust our lives to the truth, live in accordance with it, we will have beautiful lives. Conversely, our instincts know the inverse is true. Truth is beauty. Beauty is truth. If we will chase after truth, we will get beautiful lives. And we ultimately, we all know what the truth is, right? Even uh, Pilate, I think it is. Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? And Jesus answered that just chapters before when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What is truth, what is beauty, is our maker and how he made the world and living in accordance with how the maker of the world designed the world to operate. That's where we're going to find it. And as we do operate that way in our own lives, where we operate not, not like early biblical characters where they think there's not going to be enough, so they hoard and they, uh, and they cheat to try to keep more for themselves, and instead we're generous and we share, instead of the, the violence of early 
of early Old Testament characters, when we when we don't have to, we care for people we don't have to care for, and we invite them in. Instead of excluding one group, we include more, as in every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's beauty. And, and it's also truth. And as we operate in the truth and live in accordance with it, we will attract... I, I, tell me if you think I'm wrong on this. You can do so at CoreyTruexShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruexShow at gmail.com. If we will live truthfully, it's beautiful, and people are drawn to beautiful things. Now back to that other point. We know the inverse is true. Evil and untruth are hideous. Think of the stories from your childhood. We used to know this. The villains in our stories are monsters. The villains in our stories are dragons. They're hideous witches. We used to know. Evil is ugly. And don't don't get the order wrong. It's not that beauty presupposed virtue. It's that the virtuous characters become beautiful. And the characters with hideous motive, with selfish motive. I th- I'm thinking right now of, oh, I wish I could think of, it's, it's not Snow White, it's not Cinderella. Whichever one is mirror, mirror on the wall, uh, who's the fairest of them all? When that character is so obsessed with her own fairness being the most beautiful, that, that kind of narcissism, that kind of selfishness, that kind of pride, we actually remember what's underneath is she's hideous. And it's her, it's her hideous heart that made her hideous on the outside. The human heart knows this. And so when our artists and our storytellers and our movie makers, when they all start to make their art, they know if the person is evil... We're going to make them ugly because those, those things work together in concert. And it's not the other sequence. It's not, oh, I think this, I want to make an ugly character, so that's going to be the evil one. The motives lead, the heart leads to the outward appearance. You know, even in our own art, I'm thinking of the Quasimodo character. Like Quasimodo is supposed to be, in, he's ugly on the outside. But when his, his heart is revealed... When his motives are revealed, you, the person watching, but also the the damsel inside the church, I think her name was Esmeralda, I could be wrong, she starts to see his appeal. There's some, there's some exceptions to the rule here, but even when there's an exception, that's, that's what they're trying to say, is that inner beauty leads to outward beauty. In a, this is a period of time that's obsessed with outward beauty, and we're inwardly rotten. It's good to remember this. You know, I think of the movies I've watched, the stories I've read in my lifetime, and where evil and untruth are acted out, it's always ugly. You know, most of the most of the movies that depict any kind of adulterous affair, they are appealing. They're hideous stories. They make your stomach hurt. You don't like what you're seeing. Though in the one story in in my lifetime that really tried to make it look the other way that being in adultery w- was a good thing, it was a beautiful thing, which was Ma- Bridges of Madison County, there was pr- deserved uproar uproar over that because we knew there's something deep in our hearts. This is hideous. What's happening is gross. I shouldn't. This shouldn't be. You want to see something that's that's hideous, that's untrue. Look at substance abuse. I'm not, I, I use that word. I didn't use addiction for a reason. 
Man, it's, it's ugly when you see what it does to people. We know it's ugly just to, just to see the simplicity of meanness. Like we, we live in a moment where there, there was a TikTok trend a while back where young people in their teens were specifically trying to embarrass their grandparents. Just try to confuse them, get it on video. Just that kind of meanness. That it's, it's disgusting, it's ugly, we're repulsed by it. When you see rudeness and selfishness, we're repulsed by that which does not comport itself to the truth. In our age, our age is, de- is desperately in need of some beauty. You know, I, it's, such, it's such an ugly time. I don't know why this just popped in my head. It made me think of the Hunger Games. There, in the Hunger Games, if you didn't read it, there's this only one part of the country that is quite opulent. It's, it's called the Capitol. And if you see the movie or you read the descriptions in the book, the way people are dressed and the, way, the things they've done to their bodies and the, the way that they've adorned them, it's ugly. It's, it's beyond opulent. It's ridiculous. In our age, I don't know if we're headed all the way Hunger Games level, but it feels like we're headed that way. It's an ugly age in need of real beauty. Our art now, it's confusing. It's meaningless. I don't, I don't ever want to do what certain types of talk shows do and just rant about stuff, so I'm not going to. But Yeah, I mean, I, I saw the, the Martin Luther King Jr.'s tribute statue. I think that was in Baltimore. And it's, it is confusing. I, I, people called it ugly and perverse. I don't pick any of that up. But it, it is confusing. You know, the, the great statue of Martin Luther King was one that looked like him. It was of his stature. It was of his face. It captures his passion and compassion. You can see it on his face. I've been there. I've seen the statue. It's incredible. That's the tribute to him, and that's the art we used to produce, and now we produce these confusing things. We produce largely meaningless stories. Now, we're, we're in award season, and we're you're seeing the things that get nominated and paid attention to, and very few things got paid attention to by normal people because beauty, whether in relationship or 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 uh, let's go let's go emotion or in in the actual story the the arc, we're not being offered beauty, and we don't even we just don't want to see it. It's an ugly age that needs beauty. It strikes me that art is often an expression of the soul. And that deepest part of us is what produces the songs we write and the movies we make and the art we make. I recently went to breakfast with a young man who is just doing incredible things. It was good to reconnect with him. Um, and up on the uh, where the register was, at Stax Omega in Greenville. They have a bunch of Norman Rockwell paintings. And this excellent young man, was he's just young. He's, he wasn't familiar and. I got to just do a little soliloquy right there about Norman Rockwell's art, that he was painting this idealized, perfect family, the idealized nuclear family, but then there were uh, paintings on the wall of like a cop who was obviously going to be rescuing uh, this kid. It's, it's a cute little painting. They were at a uh, like a, 
like one of those old milkshake type bars, and it's obvious the child is like six or seven years old trying to run away from home because of the baggage that he has, and this cop is taking him to the ice cream shop to get some ice cream. Yeah, it's an idealized world. And certainly, let's be clear, the Norman Rockwell version of America wasn't real. Like, he painted a fake picture of what America was then. Or at least this. He painted an incomplete, let me not, let me not call it fake, an incomplete picture of what America was. But what he painted was beautiful. It was idealized. It's what should be. And they're, they're beautiful paintings. That's what we used to create. And why? Because the soul wasn't rotten. There were, we were, at that time, more intact families. There, was an, there certainly wasn't the problem we had with the church then. We had other problems. But he was painting from a time where the soul wasn't so dark. He was painting in a time where our expression was not so vapid. And so he made beautiful art. But here we are. We're, we're the culture that makes art with violence and really disgusting violence, debased sex acts in our song, the meaninglessness of the things that we make, and all it's telling us is that we're in an ugly-hearted culture. So I bring that all back around then to the first thing I said that I didn't even mean to say when I started. David writes that psalm. So one thing I've asked of the Lord, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. So instead of just railing against it and arguing about it or saying something snarky like most people that do talk shows, let me, let me make that call to you. If you gaze on the beauty of the Lord, you're gazing on truth. And if you will gaze on him more and more, and if you will bow your own tendencies, if I bow my own instincts to his beauty, to his truth, and we start treating each other and the world around us truthfully, we will be treating the world beautifully, and that will lead to art that will create, relationships will create, to moments we will create that will be beautiful. And then this this world, so in, in need of beauty as it lives in this hideous, ugly time, may it be that they are drawn to the beauty we create. And may it certainly not be that we're adding to the ugliness out there and how we live not in accordance to the truth. I told you we were going to do chronological Bible reading stuff on the show every week in 2023. I will do that when you come back. We get to start in a super fun part of the Bible, the early part of Exodus, where I get to tell you one of my favorite pieces of trivia. Too many people don't know this is true. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. If you have been keeping up with the chronological reading of the Bible in 2023, over the last seven days, you would have come through Exodus 1 through 18. Arguably, you would have been coming through the part of the Bible that's had the most movies made out of it. I know the big Charlton Heston one back in the day, but there's been plenty. This Exodus story is compelling and interesting. I'll give you a couple of the facts and then some takeaways here on the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. As I tell you every break, you can find me, and I hope you will, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. You will find me there. While every other, quote, Christian, end quote, uh, yes, it, quote, Christian, end quote, talk show is talking about primary elections. (laughs) I'm going to do this. This is way better. Exodus 1 through 18. Remember that 
does it does not break the narrative from Genesis. Genesis starts with a promise, right? I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna send one that makes all things right, and so then we find out in Genesis that God has decided to use this guy named Abraham. He's gonna be the one through whom the promise comes, and so then there's Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and God continues to reiterate reiterate the promise. There's just promises being made to this land called this people now called Israel. It was gonna be a family. Well, after the end of Genesis, where the story leaves off, here's where we find ourselves. Joseph, so this is Israel. Remember, his dad is Jacob, so his dad is literally named Israel. The people of Israel are moved to a land called Egypt, where Joseph was in charge. And they do well there. They grow into a gigantic population, and you get to a very sad verse early in Exodus, where it says that a new king or a new pharaoh came to power, and he didn't remember Joseph. So he didn't remember how good the Israelites, the people of God, had done for Egypt. And so we start to see something new take shape, where God was going to bring his promise through a family called Abraham. Now there's a new enemy, but the promise is being given through a nation. It's now a gigantic group of people. And so it expands from the family to now this larger family, which eventually become a nation called Israel. And then you know the facts from there, right? You know that God calls Moses forward, and Moses even has his own Noah story, where Pharaoh gives the terrible, the terrible order: all the babies have to have to be killed. And so you have his, I think it's Miriam, his sister, helps hide them in the river. So he's hiding in something literally through the waters, like Noah through an ark. And you know Moses' story gets taken to the palace. Uh, educated like an Egyptian, but feels his tug towards his his ethnic group. Kills a guy, goes out to the wilderness. God calls him to go talk to Pharaoh. Moses doesn't think he could do it, and so he gets his brother, Andrew, and so they're going to go talk to Pharaoh. And they go ten times to say, hey, the our God says we, he wants us to worship him over in this land over there, so we're leaving. Let the people go. You've already killed their baby boys. You've put them in slavery to try to keep them from breeding, and they're only breeding more. They're only producing more children. It's time for us to go. And Pharaoh just continually says no over and over again, and we all know how it ends, right? There's the death angel, and uh, Pharaoh is so brokenhearted, he lets the people go. They get caught at the Red Sea, and they get to cross the Red Sea, and the Red Sea crushes Pharaoh's people. Incredible story, truly the most made movie of any Christian story. Or that's even some people would call it a Jewish story, but there was the Charlton Heston movie, but there was one in the last ten years that Christian Bale was in. This is a story that continues to get made. It's super dramatic, of course, but there's a part of it that I bet a lot of you don't know. It's about the ten plagues. They're not just random things. They're the same way in Genesis when when. Moses is writing Genesis 1, and he's giving a narrative about the creation of the sun, moon, and stars. He says one is the greater light, one is the lesser light, doesn't even call them the sun and the moon. In part, it's a power play, because the Egyptians worshipped the sun and the moon. And so even in their origin story, he is saying, no, our God is so big, he didn't even need to name them, all right? They're not on the same plane with him. They don't even get names in this book. They're just going to be called the greater light and the lesser light. There's little nuances in here that make the story much more dramatic, including all ten plagues. So let's do it quickly. First plague. We all know water, the Nile, turns into blood. Well, 
maybe the chief, one of the chief gods of the Egyptians was called Happy or Hapi. I don't know how to say it. I'm not Egyptian. He was the god of the Nile, and they worship the Nile. Consider, consider, why not? I mean, it is the life giver. They get a lot of their food out of there. They get their water out of there. It's if they don't have the the river doesn't do what it's supposed to. Then the ground is not got the water it needs. Like it was their god, and so the first thing God does is say to them, "I dominate your god of the river. Your god of the river can't do anything to me. I will turn your water to blood." Two, the second. The second uh, plague was frogs. There was the god of fertility for the Egyptians, was called Hecate, and that god was most of the time depicted with the head of a frog. And so God is saying, okay, you, you have this god of fertility? I dominate that god of fertility. Let's make fun of it. Let's make lots and lots of frogs. They just keep multiplying themselves. I've often said, to me, it was the grossest of the plagues because I've been around enough frogs to know they smell horrific. And you imagine, like, you're digging through your pots and pans. There's frogs in there. It's just, that was a gross time in human history anyway. To add frogs onto it, it's just gross. So God says to your God of the Nile, to your God of fertility, I dominate you. You have nothing on me. I can do whatever I want with your gods. Plague three was lice, the, the out of the dust of the earth. That was a response at the time for uh, to Geb. It was the god of Geb. It was the god of the dirt. And so these lice were seen as earth, earth monsters, earth bugs. The earth was attacking them with bugs. And this is God saying, I dominate your river god. I dominate your fertility god. I dominate your earth god. Next was, oh, come on, Corey. Uh, flies. Flies was next. And their god was called Kepri. I only wrote down the god names, so I'm happy to remember what they were the god of. Uh, it's called Kepri. And that god was depicted, his idol and the way he was drawn up always had the head of a fly. And it was their god of, oh, I forgot, guys. I, I forgot. I forgot what he was the god of. But this is, again, God saying, you got this god of something called Kepri. You put him on stuff. All right, well, I dominate him, too. Dominate your your river god, your fertility god. I dominate your earth god. I dominate your god that I can't remember. They're all mine. I am the god above all gods. Next was the death of the livestock, um, like you know cattle and stuff. There was a goddess of love and they called it security, where uh, the protection of their land, and it was depicted as a as a cow. And so God is now killing the cow, saying, I'm destroying your protection. I'm God over that God, too. Next was boils. That's when they started getting, the Egyptians started getting boils and sores on their skin. That was a response to the goddess of Isis. That was their goddess of medicine, the goddess of medicine or a rebirth for the body. And so God is now saying to the Egyptians, yeah, I'm God over that, too. I can make you sick. I can put boils on your skin. None of your gods can, can compete with me. We're almost to the end here. Then it was, uh, if this is the eighth one maybe, the next one was hail from the sky that killed a lot of stuff. That was a response to the Egyptian god Newt. She was the goddess of the sky, and so the sky itself was attacking them the same way that they saw lice from the earth. The earth was attacking them with lice. Well, now it's the god of the sky is attacking them because God controls it all. Then it was the locusts. Locusts were sent. There, and it's, it's an odd word even that Moses uses in writing it because there was an Egyptian god of Seth 
He was the God of storms. And when he talks about the locusts coming through, he talks about them like a storm, like a big swarm of locusts coming through, like it is a like a cloud system. Coming, uh, I think we're coming, yeah, we're coming down to the last two. Ninth plague. It was three days of complete darkness. If I Three days? One day? I can't remember, quite remember. But there was some days of darkness. And we're coming up on one of Egypt's big gods. Like the Nile was a big deal, turning the Nile to, to blood because that's one of their main gods. But Ra, the sun god, this is God saying to the Egyptian people, I, not only do I have power over your earth and your sky and your fertility and your river, if I want to block out Ra, I'll block him out because I'm the God above all gods. And then the finale, above all their gods, was Pharaoh. That Pharaoh was untouchable. That man was the ultimate power in all of Egypt. And he gets one final warning. Let the people of God go to worship as God has commanded them. Or the firstborn, Pharaoh, even yours, will die. Pharaoh is not obedient. And the God of gods, the God above all gods, punishes Pharaoh by taking his first son. There's so much more there than you could possibly know. And I hope you glory in that. I hope that story just put a smile on your face. Your God is the God above all. So the gods of this world, which are wealth and pleasure and control, uh, popularity, the gods of this world, he's a God above all of them, and he will conquer them all. Two other, maybe one other note I want you to have from Exodus, if you read Exodus 1 through 18 this week. When they get out into, when people of Israel get across the Red Sea, get out to the wilderness, they have a sequence of grumbling. They have complaints, and their complaints are things like, they're, they're, they're normal complaints. It's, um, it's hot out here in the day. It's cold at night. I'm thirsty, and I'm hungry. And so they grumble to Abraham, nope, to Moses, and say, did you bring us out here to die? We'd rather go back to Egypt. At least we had food back there. At least we had water back there. We were in slavery, but at least we had that stuff. You bring us out here to die. And then in sequence, here's what happens. They don't have water. And so God has Moses speak to a rock, and, or maybe it's strike a rock, and they get water. They don't have any food. In sequence, he gets manna from heaven. We, don't, we still don't even know what manna is, but the people have all the food that they need. And then God manifests himself as a cloud in the day to shield them from the sun. He manifests himself as a fire by night to warm them in the cold desert. God is the provider, the protector of them the whole way. It was the sequence of events where the, these folks can, only, can know this God is God who is going to keep his covenant. He caused with his dominant sovereign power over all of Egyptians, the Egyptian gods, brought them out. And when they got brought out, they were not going to be left hopeless and helpless. That he was their provider and protection in all things. Final thing I want to give you on Exodus. One more sequence. When they get out of Egypt, it's later on in Exodus that we'll probably talk about next week. That's when they get the law. That's when they get their Ten Commandments and the laws to follow. He tells them how to live after getting out. There's real deep meaning in that. He doesn't say in Egypt, hey, here are some rules. Here's your law. Follow them. 
And if you follow them, then I will get you out of Egypt. I'll get you across that Red Sea and I'll get you a land. That is not the orientation of God towards his people. His orientation is not, if you do good, then I will bless. Instead, God with a heart towards his people, back then Israel just says, I'm bringing you out. In my power and my might, I'm bringing you out. You will be out of this slavery. And when I get you into that land, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to give you water. I'm going to keep you warm. I'm going to keep you cool in the day. I'm going to take care of you. So now that I have brought you out, now that I have done everything, showed you I'm going to keep the covenant, showed you I'm a faithful God, I've done it all for you. Now that we've done all that, I have a law for you. And if, if, they, if they could, and if we could, if we could just recognize this God obviously for whatever reason, in his goodness and generosity, loves me. He's taken me out of Egypt. That's our sin. That's what Egypt is representative of. He's taken me out of that. I can look back on my life with so much regularity to see how much he has taken care of me every step of the way. Now, he's given me a law. I bet that law is so good for me. I bet following that law is so beautiful for me. I can't wait to find out what he wants me to do. I can't wait to find out what he doesn't want me to do. He has covered me so fully, so completely, so faithfully, so many times. Oh, I'm going to delight in the law of the Lord. Over at Beachwood, I think this year, we're going to do a lot of looking into the law of the Lord. And I, I hope you know when you think about the, the law, the, the things the Lord calls us to do, It first comes from a God who called us out, who provided for us, who protects us. He's given us grace and then calls for obedience. It's one of my favorite songs. Your borders have fallen in pleasant places for me. The lines the Lord have drawn have been so good. And if we will follow his lines, we will live a life of beauty and truth that we talked about earlier. Thank you for listening. I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Act show on his radio talk next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.